The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Matthew 16 is where Jesus asked his disciples about who do men say that I am, and they answered, and then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. And then he said, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that is this rock of his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, which has tons and tons of implications to it. It's like wrapping up everything that the Old Testament prophesied was going to be fulfilled in him is fulfilled. And so Jesus said, upon this rock, this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The gates of hell should not prevail against it. The gates of hell is an expression that means a the defensive weapon of hell. The gates of a city where the was referring to the fact that the city was secured. They locked the gates and they were able to protect them. And so the picture is that the gospel goes through the gates of hell and pulls people out and they come to have a living relationship with Christ. So it's talking about the fact that the church is going to be victorious against the resistance of Satan and his desire to keep people in his grasp and not come to faith in Christ. So he tells us that the church is going to be victorious. Jonathan Edwards used to say that um, preaching the gospel was like sticking your head in the gates of hell and proclaiming the gospel and pulling men out of the grasp of sin and a life of death. Um, What a calling we have. We are called, according to the scriptures as a church, to make disciples. We talk about this all the time. It's our mission to make disciples who make disciples. And uh, it's a mysterious thing because if you talk to people, what, what does it mean to make disciples? It's, it's really common for people not to have a clue. Uh, I don't know. How do you make disciples? Well, sometimes we get them a discipleship book. And we have them fill in the blanks and meet with them every week and talk through all this stuff and give them a whole bunch of data about what it means to be a Christian or what the gospel is and so forth. But that, of course, doesn't mean they're actually being made disciples, does it? Because a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. It's someone whose heart has been absolutely captured by the reality of who Christ is. It's a person whose everything in his life has come under the authority of Christ. Uh, Probably the best picture we've seen of this dramatic event that turns a person from darkness to light was the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. As he describes it in 2 Corinthians, we saw in 2 Corinthians 4, he says that the God who said, let there be light, caused his light to shine in my heart so that I beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, Paul says it was the most transforming thing. And you see that in the account in Acts 9. It was an absolutely life-transforming event when he came to see who Christ really was. And he rested his faith in him. 
And then I never thought about this before, but we actually have, uh, we have a description of what discipleship is in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. In fact, I think I'll have you turn there. This isn't my sermon, but I want to pray. And so I, uh, Acts 2, 46. This is, this is how discipleship went on in the early church. And it's the way it should be going on today in the church of Jesus Christ around the world. It says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread. The temple was kind of like this gym. It was a place where they met. They met in a public place. They didn't have to pay any rent, by the way. Uh, the church met in a room in the temple, an area in the temple, and they were able to do that. And, they, and there was no church buildings until about 300 A.D., so they didn't have the distraction of trying to build a building and call it a church. So it says, day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So more and more people came to faith and then experienced this process of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ by being right in the middle of this fellowship of Christians in the early church. Somebody told me about a pastor uh, that moved into a town, started a church, and, and so we were talking about it. And he said this is what he did to get the gospel out. He uh, announced that his home would be open every Thursday and Friday night, and there would always be food you can come and uh, just be a part of this and come and we would, it would always be available on Thursday and Friday night. I thought, wow, that's, that's, that's actually a pretty good um, method. In the history of the church, this is exactly how disciples have been made throughout the, throughout the history of the church, is people formed communities in which they welcomed and invited people in who didn't know Christ. So they get right in the middle of this and hear and see in people's lives what it meant to follow Christ. I mentioned a testimony of a guy a couple of weeks ago that I read, and what impressed me about it was where he got really impacted by the gospel was in a hospital room, and the guy in the other bed was a believer, and he was not. But he said, I had never experienced the love of God, like I did just talking with this guy as he talked to me about Christ. I just had never met anybody who was such a loving, overwhelmingly loving man as he talked to me about Christ. He didn't just give him the four spiritual laws. He told him about who Christ was and what Christ had done in his life and how he wanted him to come to know this same Christ because he was the most glorious thing. As Paul said, he saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. So I want to pray for us. I'm not going to pray for the building, and I'm not going to pray for the budget. I just want to pray for us to fulfill the calling that we have upon our life as a local church to make disciples for Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Our Father, we come before you now so aware of our weakness, so aware of our need, Father, for the Spirit of God to work in us and through us. We want to see disciples made. We want to be effective in the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to see people come to have that experience of their eyes being opened supernaturally by the Spirit to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts 
and in our lives. I pray that we would be uh, led by the Spirit, that we would be uh, open and responsive to the Spirit's work in our life as he leads us in becoming disciple-makers. Father, that's our great longing uh, to see you make disciples through us who make disciples of others. Please work in us and through us in that way, we pray. It is our great hope and expectation. And so we pray, Father, that you would pour out upon us this deep and profound desire to see you at work in the lives of people. Through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now I want you to turn to Second, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 1. I got an extra week this week because Ryan's in Southern California, so I decided I want to go back and cover something I didn't really even deal with, and it's, it's chapter 1, verse 24. In Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, as you know, Paul, in this section, is having to confront the the church at Corinth. And he, in fact, he has had to confront them. And now the effect of that was there was a distancing. They were pulling away from him. And so he writes this letter because he's so concerned about wanting to draw them in because he wants God to use him, continue to use him in their life. And so he says in in verse 24, the last verse in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, he says, not that we lorded over your faith, because he's had to tell him some difficult things, but he says, "Not I don't want to lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. Quite literally, we're co-workers of your joy. <laughs> for in your faith you are standing firm. What an amazing thing that Paul saw himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, who was one of those five kinds of gifts to the church who were to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And he says, we believe our calling is not to lord it over your faith, not to always be showing you that we know so much more than you and that you should follow us, become like us, but rather we want to be co-workers with your joy. We want you to come to experience the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, um, this is really an astounding truth That joy is one of the distinguishable effects of the gospel being at work in our hearts and lives. I can tell you all all day how much I know Jesus Christ and how much what I know about him. But if I don't have joy, there's no proof that I'm having a relationship with him. Because this is one of the marks of having a relationship with Christ. It's joy. The other thing is, is that every time the New Testament talks about joy, it talks about trials. It's almost like uh, it's in the midst of trials that you actually grow in your capacity to have joy. You know why that is? Because joy is a byproduct of faith in Christ. So if you're, as your faith is being refined, your experience of joy is deepened and expanded. Uh, this is so much different than mysticism. Mysticism is this idea that you can have a relationship with God, that you can actually experience God without your mind. That you can just put yourself in some kind of a, 
uh, a mental state where you're not thinking about anything at all and you will experience God. That's a pagan concept. But it's a concept that a lot of Christians uh, grasp and take hold of, but it's not the way to have a relationship with God. The way to have a relationship with God is through faith. And one of the byproducts of faith is joy, real joy, deep joy. In fact, we're going to take a look at a couple things. If you remember, I'd like you to turn with me back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is when the children of Israel got out of Babylonian captivity and they get back to the, the promised land that God had given them. And when they get back there, now think of this, they had been gone for 70 years. They had not been on the land for 70 years. They had been away from the temple, the presence of God, the manifest presence of God, where the Shekinah had been. They had been gone for 70 years. And now they come back. I just want you to notice a couple of verses here. In, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9, it says, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. For the first time in 70 years, they're back in the land, and they hear the word of God being proclaimed as it was being read to them. For hours, they stood and listened to the word of God. And now he tells them, don't be weeping. Then he said to them, go eat the fat and drink of the sweet. Go have a hamburger and a a Coke. And send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, these people just came back from Babylonian captivity. They'd been 70 years as slaves of Babylon. And now they're back in the land. God had delivered them. And he said, it's time to rejoice. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. I happen to hear this about a thousand times because my mother used to say this to me continually. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I I take it that was primarily because I never had any joy. Uh, But she would quote this to me all the time. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for the day is this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, to celebrate. They went to party. They went to celebrate the fact that God had brought them back into the land back to his presence, back to the proclamation of his word. And a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. That is the words of scripture. They heard, because what had happened was as they read the scriptures, they explained what they meant. They saw that as some great blessing. Isn't that amazing? They all were gathered together and the word was read to them and then explained, the, the, scribe, the, uh, the Levites would explain to them what it meant. And they thought that was the greatest gift they could possibly receive. I can remember a feeling that way. I can remember when I first started hearing the Bible taught and explained in a way that actually did justice to the Word of God and what a thrill that was. And so the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so we should have joy. In... uh, Psalm 51, which you all probably recognize that psalm, it's the psalm where David confesses his sins, his sin with Bathsheba to the Father. You know that psalm, Psalm 51. 
And he begs God not to take his spirit away from him because he was an anointed king. In the midst of that psalm, verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. In other words, David wanted his joy restored. You can imagine that David had gone a long time without joy because he had, he had sinned against God. He killed his lover's husband so that he could have her as his own. Sinned horribly against God. And the whole nation knew it. Now he confesses, and he asks God to restore the joy of his salvation to him. Uh, we have been called to experience the joy of the Lord. I want to show you, uh, first of all, a, uh, a demonstration of this joy. The text is written out there for you, but I need to find it in my Bible because I can't see that far. Uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 8, the book that we are in, 2 Corinthians 8, you have this amazing description. Um, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5. And now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. Now, the churches in Macedonia had gone through a very difficult time. They were in great poverty. What It's referred to in the scripture as crouching poverty. But get this, he says, this great blessing has come, been given to the churches of Macedonia. What is that? They became rich? No. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy. They, they got a, they're in the midst of a great affliction. That's trouble. Trouble. They were in a great ordeal of affliction. They were in trouble. But their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed. It's like... I always think of this as some kind of chemical reaction. That you combined the joy of the Lord with deep poverty, and he says, and what it produced was a wealth of their liberality. They, were, they gave liberally. He says, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. What they're giving to is an offering for needy saints back in Judea. Paul wanted this because he wanted the Gentiles, and these are Gentiles, he wanted the Gentile Christians to give to meet the needs of the Jewish Christians because the Jewish Christians were very suspicious of the Gentiles. And so he takes this offering. And he goes on, he says, verse 4, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God, all because of this overflow of joy. I've mentioned this before. I still remember an expression that John Piper used to describe this. He called it an overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. If you, if you want to see the true condition of your heart, if you have joy, you will see it in several things. One is Joy, the overflow of joy is what produces worship. An overflow of joy in God is what produces worship. I didn't read it, but back there in Nehemiah, when they were so full of, of joy, which follows, it says they all raised their hands as they sang and praised the living God. Their hearts were filled with joy. And so here you have this demonstration of joy in their giving even though they were in great poverty. Now, I don't suppose that the offering was monstrously huge. 
It was just all they could give. They gave everything they could give because of their overflow of joy in God. I think this is the most important thing, characteristic to have in the Christian life is an overflow of joy in God. Because it will produce worship, it will produce service, it will produce a life that is motivated by your relationship with Christ. Because that's where joy comes from. And that's the next thing I want you to look at is the, the breeding ground for this joy. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9, which is obviously one of my favorite passages because I go to it so much. But First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, get this. He says, after telling them that he rejoices over their salvation. In fact, he says in verse 6, in this, in this salvation that you've received, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. They were, these people he's writing to, that Peter is writing to, were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia because they were being persecuted for being Christians. And so they fled and they scattered around. And they were being persecuted. So he says, you rejoice in your salvation, even though now for a little while, if it's necessary, because God doesn't let you suffer unless it's necessary from his perspective. And he says, you've been distressed with various trials. So that the approved part of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, I always get a kick out of this because this is the Apostle Peter writing this. And he had seen Jesus. He had been with Jesus for three and a half years. And, but he says to them, but you haven't seen him. But you love him. Although you don't see him, you love him. And although you do not see him now, you're not seeing him day by day, but you're believing in him and you rejoice with, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know that song? It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. <clears throat> you obviously don't or you would start singing it. Uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful expression of this, this passage. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. And that's because, what is it that brings that? He says, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you're not seeing him every day, you believe him, you trust him every day. And what that produces in your heart is joy inexpressible and full of glory. There are three effects here that he says, faith in an unseen Christ, faith that is being refined by trials, will produce three effects. The first one is Christ will become the object of your affection. Christ will become the object of your affection. If you look at the first part of verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. You love Christ. You know, the Bible does command us to love God, to love Christ. But I don't, most Christians don't even think about that because you do love him. The Spirit of God produces this in your heart. And he even uses the, the issues of life, the, the trials of life, to produce that in you. So the first thing that happens is that you will become, uh, that Christ will become the object of your affection. You've never seen him, but you love him. And then in the last part of verse 8, Christ will become the source of your joy. Christ will become the source of your joy. You're not seeing him now as you are believing in him, yet... This relationship with him continually causes your heart to overflow with joy. 
I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I had read the, a guy that said this. And it was so perceptive. And that is that three gospels have been preached in the church from the beginning. The gospel of legalism, you've got to work for your salvation and sanctification. The gospel of libertinism, which says you're saved by grace, so it doesn't matter how you live. God doesn't care. And then the gospel of lordship and liberty. The gospel of lordship and liberty is just a way of describing the true gospel. That when you came to put your faith in Christ, you entered into a relationship with him that lasts for all of eternity. And in fact, he says the characteristic of this relationship with Christ, according to John 17, 3, is that you actually get to know God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent, who he sent. You come to know him personally and intimately. And so when we get saved, it isn't just that our sins are forgiven, it's that we enter into this relationship with Christ, and it's going to last for all eternity. And he is Lord, and so we submit to his lordship because we recognize that the Lord knows what he's doing and he knows what we ought to do. And so we obey his commands because they're commands from the person who's loved us more than anybody else has ever loved us, because he died for us. And he is wise, he's all wise, he's omniscient, and he has all wisdom. And so we submit to his commandments, because we know his commandments produce real joy. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 8, remember Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What does he mean? He means listening to Jesus, receiving the commands of Jesus, lifts you up and gives you real joy in the Christian life. And so Christ becomes a real source of joy in your life. You've not seen him, but you love him, is a great thing to say. But about faith, that's a description of faith. But it's a much greater statement to say from day to day you're not seeing him, but simply believing in him. And you have, through that faith, exulting delight in him. Exulting delight in him. To exult means to uh, be overflowing with, with thanksgiving and glorying in what God has done for you. We exult in his love for us. I used to have this uh, conviction in my personal life that if I didn't experience the joy of the Lord on a regular basis, something was really wrong with me. And so I would pray through. That is, I would get alone and pray until I had joy. And I still remember how important that was to me. I was scared to death to live my life without the joy of the Lord. And unfortunately, it's gotten a lot easier over the years to live without joy. You can kind of get used to it. I mean, after all, we believe the right stuff, you know, and we have a salvation that's absolutely secure. So why do I need to have the joy of the Lord? Because it's your strength. And you can't really live the Christian life without it. Because it is a manifestation of your walk with Christ. It's a manifestation of how you're really relating to him. We just had a pastor in this general community, the larger community, who just fell into sin, had to get out of the ministry. And uh, I just got word about it from somebody, and, and uh, it was so sad to listen to. I don't even know the details. I don't want to know, but what a sad thing uh, to be living a life that you're covering up what's really going on in your heart, and you're faking it. 
That's, that's a terrible life to live, isn't it? And what God has called us to do is to experience the reality of the Christian life. And the reality of the Christian life is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so he says, because of this, you greatly rejoice. That means to be giddy with joy, that word. Extremely glad. And then he says, it's unspeakable, which means you can't express it in words. And it's full of glory, literally having been glorified. In Psalm 16, the psalmist says, You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In other words, intimacy with Jesus Christ produces heavenly joy. So Paul says, I'm not wanting to lord it over your faith. I want to be used by God as a co-worker for your joy. I want you to actually experience the joy of this kind of relationship with Christ. It'd be, it'd be easy to just to manipulate people and try to produce that effect at times, but that won't do it, will it? It's a walk with Christ. It's our life with Christ. And then the, the third effect of this kind of joy is your salvation will become real and enjoyable. Look at verse 9. He says, this, as you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word soul is a tricky word because it's used in different ways, and it's usually used in just talking about your, your whole being, you. You know, they talk about how many souls were lost on a ship that sunk. So it's describing the individual. But soul is a functional part of who you are as a, a person created in the image of God. The Old Testament actually says that God has soul. Uh, you probably never even notice it, but as you're reading it, you can see it. That is, he feels life. And you feel life. That's a function of your soul. Your spirit is that part of you that perceives God and perceives truth, and you evaluate it and so forth. But the soul is what feels the results of that. You ever learn a truth about God that you didn't know and you came upon it in the Word or somebody taught it or preached it and it just thrilled your, your soul? That's what it was thrilling, your soul. You came to know something and you began to feel the effects of it. What a glorious truth that the Father sent the Son into the world to rescue me from my alienation from God and to bring me right into the family. And I can remember uh, first uh, seeing those truths, or, or Romans 8 9. I can still remember when I first saw Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. It, he says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since it is true that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit, they don't belong to Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. He's been given to us. He lives within us. I can remember when I first discovered that because I'd been taught that you didn't have the Holy Spirit until you had some second blessing. And then I found out I had the Holy Spirit. And I began to realize that I had been experiencing the effects of having the Holy Spirit for a long time because he's constantly testifying to Christ. Well, then the one last thing, and that is two blessings of this joy found in 1 Peter chapter 4. So why don't you turn there with me? First, you're right there in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. By the way, this is an exposition. This is called topical preaching. I'm preaching textually, but from it's a topic. I'm not exegeting a passage in 2 Corinthians, but I wanted to use it as a launching pad to talk to you about joy. 
And here in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. What? Yeah, he says, when you're going through trouble and trials as believers, and he's talking to them as a group, they're being tested. They're, as a group, they're being persecuted. And he says, hey, don't be surprised by this fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you at, at, for your testing as though some strange things was happening to you. Because after all, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If you follow Christ, you're going to experience persecution. Sometimes it's subtle, and sometimes it's not subtle. We got believers in the world today who are being persecuted in severe ways. And of course, we have this great problem of people not liking us when they find out you're a Christian. Isn't that horrible? It's so painful. But he says, beloved, don't be surprised, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, that ought to grab you. That God says, as a believer, when you're suffering a trial, and especially when you're suffering persecution as a Christian, you are sharing the sufferings of Christ. It doesn't mean you died on the cross. It means that they're persecuting him by persecuting you. That's what he told Paul on the road to Damascus, remember? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, who'd been stricken blind, says, uh, well, who are you, Lord? Now, he knew he was Lord. He was master. He had power because he couldn't see him, and he had just struck him off his, his beast of burden, and he fell to the ground, and he's blind. And so he calls him Lord. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus the one that you're persecuting because you're persecuting my people. So in other words, Jesus has such a close relationship with you. If you're persecuted, he takes it as persecution against him because he's living in you. So he says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, that is the second coming, you may rejoice with exaltation. I honestly believe that when Jesus comes back, all of you are going to turn into exultant, exuberant, emotional, uh, expressive worshipers. It's all going to change. We're all just going to be set free and we'll worship with our entire being when we see Christ. And he says that's one of the benefits of suffering for Christ. It prepares you for the second coming. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because, get this, get this. If you are, if you are, you, if you're reviled, people are saying bad things about you because of Christ, because you're a Christian. He says you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What a privilege, huh? I've never been persecuted, actually. I don't know if you have. Peter describes these two blessings that flow from God-ordained suffering. He says, first of all, it increases our capacity for joy at the second coming, in verse 13. Wouldn't you like to have your ability to rejoice, expanded, multiplied, so that when Jesus comes back, you won't be this timid person standing over in the shadows, thinking, why are they so excited? 
that you'd be right there in the middle of them. How are you to rejoice in suffering? He says, in proportion to your suffering. In other words, to the degree that you suffer, you should rejoice. It's kind of like what James says in James 1. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials. Suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, the ability to trust God and love God when it's hard. It increases your capacity to do that. And this endurance then produces something else. It produces a changed character. It produces the image of Christ in you in a very vivid way. And so he says, in proportion to your suffering that you rejoice, in the midst of your suffering you keep on rejoicing. But why are we to rejoice in suffering? He says, because these sufferings are a participation in the sufferings of Christ. That's kind of astounding, isn't it? It's the word koinonia. You want fellowship with Jesus? This is how we fellowship with him, through our suffering. Suffer as a partner with Jesus. Because these sufferings guarantee a sharing in his glory in the future. Then, when you're with him, you'll rejoice with exultation. Right now, you keep on rejoicing even though you're suffering. Then you'll experience glory. Right now, you're experiencing persecution. That's what he's telling them. At his second coming, there's going to be a greater outburst of joyful exaltation. We're going to be happy. I, I, the churches I grew up in, we had an expression. They would talk about people getting happy. What they meant by that was they started expressing their joy in outrageous kind of ways. Look at that boy. Look at him. He's really getting happy. <laughs> well, it wouldn't hurt, would it? Wouldn't hurt for some of us to get happy about Christ. Oh, I know. I know happy's not the right word. That's right. That's based upon happenings. Well, it wouldn't hurt. It's used in Scripture, too, that you should be glad, which is the word for happy. You should be glad. And it should be expressed in your worship and your life. So, first of all, it increases our capacity for joy at the second coming. I, I don't know if you think about that. The second coming may be right around the corner. If we have 15 more earthquakes today, they're going off all over the world. You think, wow, what's happening? Well, it could be right around the corner. One of the things we do believe is in the imminence of his return. We're not waiting for a bunch of things to have to happen before he can come back. He's coming back. And so I think we should be working on having the kind of life, like John says this. John, in First John, he says, you should live in such a way that you wouldn't shrink back from him at his coming. You ever have those moments in your life where you think, wow, if, God, if Jesus were to walk in this room right now, I would be totally mortified. And so he says, so live in such a way that when he appears, you won't shrink back from his coming, from his appearance. And so we should, we should rejoice in suffering because it increases our capacity for joy at the second coming. And then secondly, he says in verse 14, it provides evidence that we are his special people. Look at verse 14 again. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What an expression. You know, there's, there's this expression in the New Testament. 
it's even in the Old Testament, actually, when God wanted to do something special through a person, it says that the Spirit came upon him. The Spirit came upon him. Like uh, the guys that built the tabernacle in the Old Testament when they were in the wilderness, and they built these craftsmen built the, the tabernacle, it says that the Spirit came upon them and filled them, gave them the ability to build this thing perfectly. And it says that all the time in the New Testament, that there are events that take place, and it's because the Spirit came upon a person and empowered them to do something God wanted to do through them. You may have experienced that when you witness to somebody, and you, you walk away thinking, man, what got into me? Well, maybe it was the Spirit of God who was quickening you. I was telling somebody this morning, I have an uncle who lives in Oklahoma City. He's probably 86 or something like that, and he, he was a missionary for years, and he became a pastor here in the U.S. for a while, and now he's retired. His wife died about a year ago or so, and every time I talk to him, he tells me his routine. He can't preach anymore. Nobody wants an 86-year-old to preach, and so what he does, he goes down to the mall, and he just he gets him something to eat, and he sits in this seating area that he sits, sits in every day. He goes there, and he starts eating his meal. And he says, it is amazing. Without exception, every day somebody comes by who I get to talk to about the Lord. And then he says, in fact, today, and he starts telling me the story about this guy who comes walking by, and he says, I thought he was going to pass me. And then he turned around and came back and said, hey, is anybody sitting here? He says, no, have a seat. He sat down, he said, we started talking, and he was going through, he starts kind of bearing his soul to me about how bad his life was, and I began to tell him about Jesus Christ. And he made a profession of faith. The Spirit of God comes upon people. And here it says, if you're going through trials, you're being being, uh, persecuted because of Christ. If you're reviled... That is, they say slanderous things about you for the name of Christ. You are blessed. Wow. That sounds like a second blessing, doesn't it? Nobody's, Nobody's preaching about this blessing. If they revile you in the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It almost sounds like if the spirit of God and glory rests upon you, you're going to be reviled. Maybe we should just expect that. So the effect of suffering as a Christian, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's an Old Testament expression. It's, uh, it marked out the Messiah through whom the kingdom was going to come. In Isaiah 11, he used the same expression for Jesus. The spirit of God rested upon him. And I guess when we, when we experience fellowship with Jesus through suffering, that the Spirit of God and of glory rests upon us. We might, maybe we could start a group. Everybody that wants to be, have the Spirit of God, of, uh, God and glory rests upon you by being reviled. One joy. Well, according to 1 Peter 1, love Jesus and trust Jesus even as your faith is being refined by your suffering. I want you to understand, I think there's certain kind of suffering that people go through that's so horrible and you can't make, it isn't like, well, God's really blessing you today. Look at this mess you're in. No, that's not what I'm saying. What, what the Bible is saying is that God, God will even use suffering in our life 
in order to give us joy. That's how much he wants us to have joy. Because the joy is the response of, that is the effect of faith in Christ. It's, it's, it's what Paul, I mentioned before, what Paul said happened to him, that God, who said, let there be light, caused his light to shine in his heart so that he saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. It was quite dramatic when you read the account of it, but I think he's saying that's what should be going on in our lives every day. That what should be going on, what I want to be going on, what we should be praying for and asking God for is, Father, cause, your, cause the light to shine in my heart so I can see your glory in the face of Christ, in the person of Christ. Can you talk about him as though he's the most glorious thing that ever happened to you in all of life? When you talk to fellow uh, people about Christ, instead of just giving the five, you know, the four spiritual laws, what if you were to tell them, let me, let me just tell you about what, the, what, is, what has happened to me, what happened to me when I came to know Christ, when my eyes were open to who he is. Somebody preached the gospel to me and my eyes were open and I saw the glory of God in the face of Christ and it's changed my whole life. He's, he's changed everything. He's given me joy. He's given me a life in which I look forward to getting up every day and walking with him. So I do pray that the, the, that the spirit of God and of glory would rest upon you. I don't want you to be um, slandered. I don't want you to um, have people saying mean things about you. But if it does happen, I pray that that will be what takes place, is that the, that the spirit of glory would rest upon you. The spirit of God and of glory would rest upon you. And you would experience the blessing side of suffering. I, I've learned that saying these words to people who are going through suffering don't have any effect unless the spirit of God speaks to them. I, I've been talking to a guy who's going through deep depression, and it isn't helping him. I went home after I talked to him a dozen times. I went home one evening and I was so beat down and so depressed myself because I was giving him all the theological interpretation of his trouble, and somehow it didn't it didn't relieve his 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 misery because nothing less than the Spirit of the Living God opening your eyes to the glory of Christ will lift you up, and we understand that. And that's why we do pray for each other in, our, in the midst of our suffering. Let's, let me pray. Our Father, I, I want to be able to say thank you for trials because the joy is so wonderful. And I do mean that. But I want to be honest about it. I want to be able to give you thanks, Father, for, for troubles and trials and hardships for being slandered and those kind of things because of the effect that you produce in us and through us. I pray we would be encouraging to each other. Uh, we're, a, we're a family of God. We are a community of faith. And there's always times when people within the flock are going through difficult times, when they're going through trials and trouble of various kinds. And Father, I pray that you'd give us the kind of faith that when we pray for them, we could remember we're not just praying, please get them out of that mess. 
Please remove that person from their life. But instead we're praying, oh God, use this for your glory in his life and her life. Cause the spirit of glory and of God to rest upon them. That they would experience a great, great joy of fellowship with Jesus Christ, even in the midst of trials. Make us joyful people. We pray, Father, that somehow you could do a work in us, in this local church, that when people came in among us, when we gathered together for worship, that they could sense that we are a people of joy. And when they hear our explanation, it would ring true. We pray, Father, that you would work in us in a deep and real way. We want to be instruments in your hands for your glory. And we ask this of you in the name of Jesus, the one who was willing to die for us so that we could come into this relationship with you. Glorify your son, Father, by answering our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.